Welcome to DAO Today, a podcast that hosts lively and challenging discussions on decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs. Alongside some experts and builders in the space, this podcast aims to promote your knowledge on everything DAO, discuss blockchain-related topics, and challenge the lack of diversity and inclusion in the industry. DAO Today podcast is hosted by Alexa Mill, aka Delexa. There is a lot to learn about DAOs as a concept, what they are, and how to build decentralized while navigating the complexities of the regulatory environment. You will have an opportunity to learn from builders, change makers, legal, compliance, and other professionals. So follow and subscribe to DAO Today with Alexa Mel, not to miss out on any episodes. I promise you will learn new things and have some fun along the way. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first DAO Today panel. Uh, I'm your host, Alexa Mill. Today's topic is the library ruling and its impact on the industry. Uh, Katie, Nathan, Jonathan, it's great to have you here. Uh, would you please introduce yourselves to the listeners and what's your involvement in the industry? Katie, please, ladies first. Thanks very much. Um, so, hi, I'm Katie Fry-Paul and I'm an English law qualified lawyer. Um, I specialise in financial services regulation and particularly the regulatory obligations on fintechs and especially crypto asset businesses. So I now advise all types of crypto asset business from exchanges to DeFi protocols, platform developers, uh, NFT marketplaces, I mean, you name it. Um, so I, I will not claim to be any sort of expert on SEC enforcement action or, or thankfully that Howie test. Um, but obviously, um, crypto is um, borderless by nature. Um, so in a previous life, I was a um, military intelligence officer in the British Army and then decided to make a big career change and um, retrain as a lawyer. But my my academic background and my my crypto genesis story really is that before um, joining the army I studied physics at university so initially I came to this subject from that perspective um, and being interested in crypto and DLT from um, reading the bitcoin white paper um, so I'm really happy to be here so thanks for inviting me along and thank you very much for coming it's great to have you here um, Nathan, would you please introduce yourself? Sure. It's tough to follow Katie's uh, credentials there. I, I'm a U.S. lawyer. I practice primarily in Maryland and the District of Columbia. Occasionally, Virginia, when dragged, kicking and screaming, um, and that includes the federal courts of those jurisdictions and a few others where appropriate. Um, <clears throat> my practice for the last I would say 10 years has been primarily litigation with some counseling of things that bleed over into that with so a lot of employment, commercial negotiation. Um, when you can convince a client that you represented the litigation that, hey, maybe we should fix these contracts before you have this happen again. Um, probably going, going into 2020, I started being interested in crypto, particularly decentralized finance aspects of it uh, with COVID grinding all of my pending trials just to a complete halt. 
I had a lot more time to jump into it and kind of really that's how I got into it and have been super interested ever since. I'm involved with a lot of DAOs, different crypto legal organizations like LexDAO, LexPunk, Bankless Legal Guild, and you know, just trying to add value where I can, both in the DAO space and then for crypto startups that may eventually be there. Amazing. Thank you so much. And Jonathan, tell us a bit about yourself. Hey guys, uh, name is Jonathan Schmalfeld. I'm an attorney here in the U.S. as well, uh, licensed in Missouri and Illinois, uh, but practice pretty much everywhere. Um, my background is in tech transaction data privacy. Um, prior to that, I was an IP, soft IP litigator, um, dealing with lots of trade secret, trademark, copyright issues. Um, I was a crypto investor going back to 2015, 2016, but never really crossed my legal path until similar to Nathan around 2020 um, with the uh, emergence of NFTs, uh, my background in uh, commercial litigation and especially in copyright trademark. Um, there are lots of issues that were revolving around that. So I started a blog, NFT Tourney, um, and started writing on there just mostly for friends in space, not really trying to develop any business, just seeing a lot of uh, kind of shady things going on and trying to protect people from that. Um, and it wasn't a whole lot of legal, legal scholarship on the subject. So started writing on that. And then that ended up growing out my practice to now where I do pretty much full-time tech transaction and data privacy work in the Web3 space, um, mostly representing venture capital investment in the space, but also developers, uh, marketplaces, um, individual investors, just to run the gamut on that. Um, so obviously that's where my background comes in, where the keeping up on what's going on in the space and how we're advising clients and investors on the risk portfolios that they have um, whenever they are looking to get in on a SAFT or an early round or a seed round or anything like that, especially when you look at a case like library where they did have uh, invest traditional investment that came in um, and how those traditional investors are also being affected by this ruling. Great, and thank you all for coming today, and especially Jonathan Heaton. I know it's the Thanksgiving in the U.S., so really appreciate taking the time and coming here to, uh, to discuss this very important event that has been overlooked a bit. Um, before we move into the topic, I would like to remind the listeners that this panel is for educational and, and informational purposes only. Nothing said by myself or anyone on the panel can be construed as legal, financial, and or business advice. And mentions of any projects do not represent any sort of endorsement and promotion. So we all know that this year was quite eventful for this space, uh, many good and the, and the bad. But especially these past weeks uh, were really tense so with the crash of the exchange and its effect on the on the whole industry and what it can mean for for all the for the investors and everyone involved in the space. And um, that actually quite took a lot of space in the media and overshadowed the library ruling and. Um, the, the the effects of that ruling are not really discussed much in the media um, and uh, and the impact it can have. And for a brief intro, intro about library, it's a protocol that allows anyone to build apps 
that interact with any digital contact that is uh, that is found on the network. And basically, those apps allow the creators to upload their uh, to, to the network. It works something uh, between uh, BitTorrent, and you can also um, set a price per stream or download, and you can also give it away for free. So the whole idea behind library is to be decentralized, alternative to be to these um, uh, to these apps, centralized assets such as iTunes, YouTube, and other and other platforms. What a library says they are uh, they are they are doing to publishing what Bitcoin did to money. So the the topics today is the library ruling um, and the. Uh, in, uh, around in, in 2016, more or less, uh, SEC and library entered a very long battle because um, SEC claims that library offered and sold unregistered securities in violation of the Section 5 of the Securities Act from 1933. So if we take a quick time travel to the future and the year of 2022, um, what they say is that they offered and sold millions of worth of unregistered securities to investors in the form of LBCs, library credits, which was also further used to build and develop the, the network. Uh, but also what's interesting is that the library did not have any ICO and they did not sell any, uh, any, any tokens until the network was fully, was fully functional. And so um, earlier in November, the ruling came in and uh, where SEC asked, um, asked a permanent injection against the sale of the tokens, disgorgement of all funds received uh, with the interest and civil penalties. So earlier, uh, earlier, earlier in November, the court decided to grant the SEC's request. So uh, I would begin with asking, uh, what does uh, what kind of impact can this library ruling have on the industry? Jonathan, what's your take? Yeah, so just to be clear, they they won on summary judgment, but the court hasn't ruled on any kind of injunctive or what the damages will be or disgorgement or anything like that. So that's still to be decided on that. Another thing to clear up just before we get into it is the fact that um, this didn't, this, there wasn't an issue on whether future sales would also be considered sales of unregistered securities or if secondary market sales are considered sales of unregistered securities. It, unlike the Ripple case that's currently pending, um, this one was an exceedingly narrow issue. Um, they were really going after just one of the four prongs of how we, First Circuit treats as three prongs, but it's the four prongs of how we, and the only thing they were really uh, at issue was expectation of profits based solely on the efforts of others. So it was that and fair notice. Those are the only two at issue. So as far as how this is going to affect other things, it is, it is important to point out that first, we don't know what the ruling is as far as uh, damages and things like that. And second, that this was a narrow ruling on fact-specific issues. That said, it is a bad ruling. It is a bad thing for uh, for crypto tokens. Lots of people looked at library as doing things the right way. They weren't doing the ICO. They When they released, they had a fully developed platform. Um, the tokens were consumptive. There was an actual use for them on a release date. 
They were they did traditional investment raise. They did they bought on shareholders and did a securities and, and then venture investing. And they didn't sell tokens as a part of that. There wasn't any kind of pre-token uh, allowance as a part of that. Um, and then they waited a year until after the develop after the platform was already working and functional. And there was a good amount of videos on there. I know the SEC disputed how much was there and how much it costed and how much the consumptive purpose really was because of how little it cost to actually publish on there. But the point stands that they they did things in a way that lots of people in the industry looked at and said, this is as safe as you can do at the time. Obviously, practices have changed. That's not how people release tokens anymore. It's not really the common practice. But at the time, they did things in a way that lots of attorneys would look at them and say, if you're going to release a token, this is about as good as you can do it. So that's the issue here is that um, these tokens and these specific sales um, were deemed securities in a way that lots of people were looking at. All right, maybe under Foreman, maybe courts will say, yeah, if there's utility, then we're not going to treat it as security. Where if it is true consumptive use, we're not going to treat it as security, and the court said, "No, we don't. We don't really care about consumptive use. It doesn't really matter as far as the Howey test comes in the First Circuit. Remember, this is just one circuit, one judge ruling on a very narrow issue." Yeah, in, in the court, they actually in the court they actually asked, "Does it like is there any standard when it comes to okay, so what if the token is used for its intended use or it's used as a spect um, expectation of return?" And they also did independent analysis where they actually realized that a lot higher percentage of the tokens was actually used for its intended use, not for not for, not for speculative and for investment purposes. And what was also interesting to hear is that uh, the SEC lawyer actually denied, uh, actually said that the utility doesn't matter, and um, that just matters what uh, how. What what was done, the, like according to how it has, but the utility doesn't matter, and that is quite uh, quite dangerous for I mean for basically the whole crypto industry. Um, what do you think, Nathan? Uh, I think you're correct in that kind of the characterization of the token as a security is almost inherently a flawed way to look at it. Um, because really what you should be looking at and what the court should be looking at is that, is that transaction, is that interaction, is that an investment contract as opposed to, is this token a security? Because once you start calling the token a security, as opposed to the interaction, the investment contract that occurs, the sale or distribution, you're kind of shifting the paradigm and the view of how the whole analysis is taken I think that's a very dangerous way to look at it. Um, DX Law, Lewis Cohen recently, and a group of people actually recently put out a piece called the Intellectable, <laughs> Intellectable, <laughs> sorry, I gotta say it, Modality of Securities Law and Why fun, fungible, fungible Crypto Tokens Aren't uh, Securities. I really butchered that. I even had it up in front just to not screw it up. Um, but what they go into is really some aspects of how it's the transactions that are relevant. And again, they use kind of a hypothetical view of saying, even if you do these things in these different ways, there's aspects of it that could make it, you know, where these specific portions of transactions are, right? An ICO, almost certainly an investment contract. Um, you know, the way to get around that is, as Jonathan said, you go a traditional venture capital route, you have a um, have investors 
accredited investors, other companies, specifically investing into a corporation. They get a safe or a SAFT or something like that. And that's the workaround. But once you start looking at the token itself and saying this is a security, kind of how you get to that investment, any way you invest in it, basically makes it an issue um, in the US under the SEC's analysis, at least for the first, you know, first circuit. Um, thankfully, it, this is something that would just be, it's not binding on other circuits, on other judges, but it is persuasive. They can look at it, they can adopt the analysis, and that's the really concerning part of it. Because keep in mind, lawyers are not ever really coming up with a whole lot of new stuff, particularly once you're in federal court litigation, they're looking for how did other people do it? How can we adopt this and make it work for our case instead of reinventing the wheel? And this is just putting in place a template of kind of an improper view of how to analyze a transaction because you're just saying, oh yeah, the token's a security. Um, and the other, another issue there is that they argue it's a security because they used uh, the funds they raised uh, uh, to invest in the platform, in the network to further develop it. And I mean, it's tech, right? So it's perfectly normal that that's being done and they call, uh, I mean, how they put like as a maintenance or something. I mean, it's perfectly normal that you bring tech, that you keep up upgrading that tech for, for obvious reasons. And, uh, the law needs to, under, I mean, the law needs to understand that in order to be applied uh, for what it really is and for the nature of um, what certain projects uh, is trying to is trying to achieve. And another argument was that they said um, and they sold those tokens from two uh, from two wallets that were that were owned by by library, and that's one of the arguments why it's uh, security. Um, Katie, would you like to comment on that? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, I guess from the outside um, looking in, this is a really clear example of, of the issues when you have regulation by enforcement, which is, I think, what we um, certainly in the UK, what we see um, the SEC doing. Um, and when you have this type of activity, um, it creates and, and perpetuates uncertainty. So when you are um, putting together a project um, in the US, I mean, why would you do that in the US? You would take that project offshore, um, surely where there is where there is either certainty of, of regulation or, or you can be sure that you're you're not going to be issuing a security because um, it, you know it, it, it seems like pretty much everything is a is a security in the SEC's view. So that takes um, innovation outside of the US, which is, you know, it must be a bad thing. Um, and it also means that um, you also have projects which potentially are run by bad actors, which um, are being run outside of um, regulators purview. Um, so that is in fact bad for um, consumers, I think on two counts. Um, you know, regulation doesn't really um, uh, stifle innovation. Uncertainty stifles innovation. And, and that's, um, I think it's really sad for um, Library, which is, you know, an excellent kind of idea. And it's a great platform. And I really love the the idea of what they're trying to do. Um, and it's a shame that um, this is 
really happened and, and tried to stifle that that project in in that way um and and it just drives regulatory arbitrage in my view Yeah, you brought up an excellent point when it comes to that regulation by enforcement. Uh, I mean, it's definitely doing not, it's not doing anyone good. And uh, there was also a question in the court whether there is a standard that can be applied in order to understand whether a token is a security or not. Besides, of course, like the Howey test, for example, what you mentioned, the intended use. Um, and also, for example, how many users you have on the platform um, when it will start and how many videos. So. According to them, there were around four videos in 2017, while today you have over 15 million um, videos on the platform. So that definitely does does make a difference. And um, it was an interesting stance to see that, again, utility does not matter. And uh, that if you if you find one reason, just, just go after that one and uh, push as much as you can in order to get um, a certain ruling. Um, Jonathan, would you, love to, would you like to share uh, your insights on uh, what Katie mentioned uh, and the uh, regulation by enforcement? And I mean, why is, uh, why is that even a thing? Since it will definitely hinder the innovation and the growth that can happen in the US. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's definitely, you're seeing more and more projects that are going overseas, whether that be um, using OBC foundations for their release of their tokens, uh, geo-blocking, who can buy the tokens, only giving access to accredited investors for these tokens. And that's not, that's not great. Obviously, we want to make sure that people are informed, they, that they avoid rug pulls, that these aren't, these aren't, that these tokens actually have an actual real use. They're not just someone who spun up a ERC token and then was able to just take a million, couple million dollars and peace out with it. You want to protect from that, obviously. Um, but you are seeing people that are trying to uh, comply with the law and they're not finding any leeway. They're not finding any resources within the SEC. We just saw uh, Polkadot, who came out and was working with the SEC for quite a long time, and they only offered it to accredited investors or people that were abroad, and they geo-blocked, and they did all these things, and now they've come out and released and said that they've morphed into a non-security, whatever, whatever that means, which I agree with Nathan. That's not the correct analysis. It shouldn't be that the token itself is security. It's whether the transaction is a security. Uh, it's a, uh, it's a uh, security transaction. So that's, that's one issue. But yeah, you are seeing that people going across. And what that's doing is that the everyday investor, the person who is just active in the space, who's in the U.S., isn't having access to this. The only people who have access to these tokens at the earliest stage, when they are the most valuable, when you can be the most influential as to the direction that the project takes as an owner, is all being held by people either abroad or VCs, which I don't think anybody really wants that to be the end result. I think that Crypto really evolved from a, a collaborative environment of people who believe in a project. You buy a bunch of tokens, you get together with devs, you build on top of it, you build dApps on top of it. You kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a process between the community. It's not just one developer. Obviously a developer has to come first and be the initial uh, release of that and be the initial guiding principle. But at, at a certain point, it becomes not the developer, it becomes the community and the people that are building on it and building the businesses and dApps on top of it and all these other things that in the case of the library became content creators who are trying to build on that they were really or they're being affected right now so that's the issue is that it's really it's really being a a guard in the same way that traditional finance is 
and only given access to the elite and the people with a lot of money, the VCs, the credit investors, the people abroad, and it's not giving access to people in the U.S. who maybe are non-credit investors, who maybe are just active in the space, but now are missing out on these opportunities to really grow the space in the way that we want them to be able to. Uh, thank you very much for that. And Nathan, what's your take on the regulation by enforcement? And uh, I also listened to some of the interviews that uh, Jeremy, the CEO of Library, had, and he mentioned that they were like really, um, really wanted to be really accommodating towards SEC. Said like, okay, so tell us what to do, guide us what to do, how to be compliant, and uh, what do we need to do? Do we need to be any penalties, whatever? You know, just leave us that we don't have to. We don't have to register, and that we don't have to KYC everyone. And um, SEC did not even. I mean, at least according to him, didn't want to hear that. And um, allegedly, they also threatened him with some lengthy and costly process uh, with the lawyers. And the case was over a million dollar already um, in, uh, in 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 fees. Um, so I'm curious to to hear what uh, what do you think? What's your stance on why is uh, why is uh, this approach um, that SEC is taking? So, so Alexa, you're going to get trigger me into a long rant about the ineffectiveness of U.S. regulators or just worldwide regulators. That's why I'm here. <laughs> um, look the. The point of a regulator is that they are supposed to be looking for active threats to consumers, to people that are using, you know, doing the investment, whatever it may be. But historically, we've seen that clearly is not the case that there's too much obfuscation with the intermediary aspect of a lot of financial transactions. And that is what crypto, what DeFi, what Bitcoin, what whatever is supposed to fix is to facilitate disintermediation to allow people, not accredited investors on a day-to-day -day basis to decide, hey, this is a fantastic project. I want to put my money and time into it through a DAO or some other mechanism. And I want to be able to build and make the world a better place in that way. What we have instead is we have in the US again, as the main example, um, you can only invest in things if you're a accredited investor. You know, that, that, that inherently is eliminating the ability of people to build on the consumer economy and to better themselves in some way. What we would really want is regulators allowing these things to occur, guiding projects, and then providing, going after the actual entities that are being predatory, that are scams, that are rugging people. Um, if you look at FTX, for example, <laughs> great example. You know, I don't, that's not a crypto issue. That is a scam and a fraud issue. It's Enron all over again. It's Bernie Madoff. It's whatever. But remember, they didn't comply or didn't want to comply with regulations. They had the Bahamanian entity set up. But the reality is, and I'm pretty sure all of us know American citizens who had a lot of money, both for trading on FTX and owned FTT tokens, not through, not through FTX US, 
but just to the actual entity because for a long time they did almost nothing to prevent that from occurring. And I think, so one other and the last bit of the rant is regulation by enforcement basically takes the, it, it appears in function, and this is a, you know, just an analogy, but it's like a pack of wolves going around a herd. And what you wait is for someone, one, you know, one of the pack to stumble, and then you pounce on them and you set, show everyone what occurs if you stumble here. Great example of that is with Ukidao, they got hacked, civil suit occurred, a lot of documents are out there. It's really easy for the SEC, the CFTC, whoever it is, to look at those documents, be, hey, we've got a case, we can wrap this up as a bow and just drop the hammer on them. And it'll scare other people either into not doing it or into compliance in some way. Um, and I think you know, the big issue with that is that's just not an effective way to protect consumers, right? The effective way to protect consumers is when Brian Armstrong from Coinbase comes in and says, hey, I would like to set up this earn, I think it was called earn, you know, thing where you can earn three or 4% on your USDC. How can we do this properly is not to basically not say allow them tell them how to do it and make it so they just withdraw the product entirely three or four percent on usdc isn't a whole lot of money in the scope of things but that is protecting allowing you know people to do that in a proper way is a better thing than being like let me just yolo into uh pool two somewhere for a hundred thousand you know apy and then it ends up dropping and i lose all my if you're not you know, sophisticated in the space. So that's where <laughs> regulation by enforcement is bad. <laughs> Thank you for the rant. <laughs> and you brought up an excellent point that, I mean, a library is such a small project compared to many other projects out there that are probably doing things in a lot worse manner and have committed a lot more um, uh, how would I say it? I wouldn't put it illegal, but not so legal activities. And it's interesting to see um, since library was quite transparent and they have all their information out there on the website or on different platforms and you could, uh, you, you could find basically whatever you wanted. And uh, since the industry is about transparency and then the regulators are complaining how we're not transparent and honest about what we do. And this time they did have the opportunity and instead of providing that guidance that they actually ask for, they, they went hard on them, right? And uh, they, um, they're they claiming things that doesn't make any sense. And um, it brings really a question, why is library such a small project a target to the SEC? What are, what are they trying to achieve with this? Katie, what do you think? Um, I I mean, like you, I've listened to some of the interviews with um, Jeremy Kaufman, the CEO of Library, and, uh, you know, it was really obvious to me from what he was saying that Library were very transparent and, and they had given voluntarily a lot of information to the SEC, um, which, I mean, can't possibly have been under legal advice, I would expect, but um, they had been very transparent um, and made a lot of information public. And they'd also made attempts to speak with the SEC and to gain clarity. And, and you're entirely right. I think that that was um, rebuffed and 
Um, there have been comments even from inside the SEC, I think, um, from, uh, is it Hester Pierce, um, who um, said that, you know, we just didn't engage. Um, we're, we're just, um, we're not putting in, in place any guidance. Um, we're just going for enforcement. And, and that was an inside criticism. Um, so I think the fact is that the SEC had a lot of information on library. Um, and, you know, it's it's easier when you have a lot of information to make something stick, I think. Um, but um, my my fellow panellists uh, from the US will probably have a, a better idea than I do as to the motives of the SEC, potentially. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting what you mentioned. Actually, they did have the legal counsel from the very beginning and even before the launch and throughout the project. So it would be interesting to know whether, uh, what was the legal counsel's take on being so transparent and putting everything out and sharing everything with the SEC, especially since the battle is, uh, goes since 2016. Uh, I mean, from the very beginning, right? So I would assume that <laughs> they did have that talk and uh, uh, interesting point. Thank you. Thank you for that. And, well, I'm, um, sure, I'm sure that the, the advice was made on the best of um, best of intentions, and I'm sure there was a good reason for it at the time. Yeah, I mean, probably, right? So maybe they thought that transparency that they're asking uh, would ease the pressure, but it actually backfired and it created even worse situation. Thank you for that. And Jonathan, what do you think? Why is such a small project of such a big interest for our beloved SEC? I mean, I think we're seeing that the SEC is going after easy wins. Um, other than the XRP case, they really haven't gone after a well-funded project. I mean, the securities case against the insider traders and that's out in Washington right now, the Coinbase insider traders, they didn't go after any of the tokens. They just went after the two, a couple individuals who made a couple hundred thousand dollars inside of front running these trades. And they're going after that, they go after the kicks. They go after the telegrams, they go after that, but they didn't go after FTT. They didn't go after lots of these other projects that probably are closer to the line for lots of these things, but they're very well-funded. They're gonna be a well-funded defense. They've seen what Ripple has been able to put up with their XRP token uh, defense and what's going on with that. And I think that they've, they've decided to go after some of these easy wins so that when they do wanna go after the bigger projects, they can just string site seven different decisions, the telegram, the kick decision, this decision. And even though none of them, even though lots of the things that they'll cite are in dicta, even though lots of the things aren't applicable for these different projects, when a federal judge is looking at that, they're not saying, oh, well, those weren't as well funded. I'm not going to pay attention to that. They're just saying that there's been four cases that have ruled for the SEC and zero for token people. So I think that's what the SEC's plan is to kind of develop this circuit war chest of all these various smaller project decisions that then when they decide to go after the bigger project, they have that. And then we're, as litigators, we have to spend valuable page space distinguishing those projects, distinguishing all that when when SEC can just put a string site there and they they wanna they want a point there that now we have to rebut. And I think that's the main thing. Yeah, that's very true. I mean when you look again at the at the FTX, I mean that's that's a centralized regulated entity. I mean at least it should be and it should be subject to different checks, audits on a regular basis to make sure that the 
funds are there and not flying somewhere to unknown and um, that the balance sheet holds of eight billion just to begin with do not uh, do not happen overnight so that was like a very it seems to be like a very regular oversight and a failure to really assess whether a centralized exchange that is does bridging to DeFi and it's a centralized entity is not following the regulations that is given by those same regulators and when um, when a centralized exchange crash happens, well, blame it in crypto. It's all about DeFi and uh, um, those cro crooks and what they're doing. We need to heavily regulate them. And when you have heavy regulations, you're not really implementing them and executing them. So it's it's really interesting to see how like that double standard actually um, actually does exist with uh, with the regulators. Um, and Nathan, what what is your opinion on why do we have uh, to say like such a different approach uh, in targeting the small projects, and when we have a lot bigger fish to fry, but it's no, we are not frying it; we're letting it swim. Yeah, I think the unfortunate reality is that U.S. Regul financial regulators are underfunded to do what they are expected to do when potentially being faced with litigation against multi-billion dollar firms who can hire the best white shoe lawyers. Um, look, it, there's not really an ability of the SEC right now or say two years ago to go after FTX in any way, any iteration. Um, you know, FTX and Binance have their US entities, but there are still lots and lots of US users on those that is more than sufficient, and I, I'll take finance out of it. I don't want to upset CZ, so. <laughs> um, but you know, there was more than enough standing to go after FTX. That's the reality. Um, there were so many U.S. users. The know your customer and anti-money laundering things in place with would provide enough background of who is using it. You could clearly see, right? I mean. I think on Bankless, David Hoffman the other day was like, oh, I just thought, right, like I thought I could just use normal FTX still, and there was just this other additional, you know, US FTX entity, right? Like he's in the space, he knows how this works, but here's, if he just as a person is like, oh, I can just use this, and there's nothing preventing them really. Look, most of us use VPNs for privacy purposes, not even to skate around geofencing. And if you can go to FTX, click, log in, do it, and whatever the process is, and wire in money from the U.S. somehow, whether it's through Silvergate, which, you know, is an issue, the SEC can go after them. They could have gone after them last year. They could have gone after them two years ago. But they didn't because they have their hands full with Ripple, and they just functionally do not have the ability to prosecute two cases of that level. So it said, as Jonathan said, look, it's strategy go after a couple like lag you know people who lagged a bit you have you either go after someone who screwed up somehow and there's just lots of visibility on it and you have to go after them or you go after someone who is trying to facilitate the process in the correct way like here's all our information <laughs> and then you know once you have that information it's really easy to just draft a up a complaint um, you know it's resource low what it comes down to is resourcing and mandate of 
how these U.S. regulators are run. Um, and look, I don't think the answer is just give them tons of money, but figure out a way to facilitate regulatory compliance with people who want to do it and want to make it happen. Yeah, and that's very true. I mean, there are people in the space that do want to be compliant, but you don't have the clear guidance. And even when you ask, you're like, well, we don't know, right? But then when the regulation by enforcement happens, well, you know, now we know how to enforce it. So it's... Um, it's a it's extremely logical approach that really puts many at risk. And it's not only, you know, the founders and let's say, like, let's blame it all, all on the founding team. I mean, there are so many people involved around the globe in the U.S. that are heavily infect, um, impacted by this. And it's just, it's, um, I don't think they really understand the, what the community is and how it operates. And uh, I I also think they really did not expect to see that kind of resistance from either of the cases, the, the Ripple case and uh, and um, the library, probably they expected it to go a lot quieter and to have that uh, swift battle. And no, Nathan, do not please upset CZ. He might tweet something, you know, then we are in trouble. <laughs> Katie, I would love to hear your opinion since um, both Jonathan and Nathan said that they're doing that strategy. Okay, so let's go after smaller projects. So when we have enough uh, tools and power to go after the bigger ones, we can actually um, we can harm them or you know, take them to court and hopefully cancel them. So what do you think? What what is the effect? Uh, what is going to be the impact of this ruling on the Ripple case? So I think. To me, and I think um, this echoes what uh, what I think um, Jonathan said earlier. You know, the the cases are different, and this um, the library case turned on its particular facts. Um, so I think we have to be quite careful about extrapolating. And um, I I know the the kind of the tweets from um, from library about what this means for crypto in the US, um, you know, this is a really dangerous precedent, but I think we have to be careful about um, kind of accepting that as gospel because um, each case is different. It has its own circumstances. Um, the Ripple case is, is different because um, all of the prongs are still in play as far as I'm aware. So um, whereas library, we were only concerned with the, with the last, um, the, the final um, prong of the Howey test in Ripple, I think everything is still um, up for grabs, um, as it were. So um, it, it is quite it is quite different. And also Ripple is um, is um, substantially higher profile. Um, it, it, it has a lot of weight behind it. It has Ripple has a lot of um, cash behind it. Um, and, and so I think. I think, yes, um, that there are aspects of this where um, the SEC will be glad to have uh, potentially another hook that they can that they can tug on um, when they're when they're putting together arguments. But but actually, I think it, it's quite a different case. Thank you. Can I interject one thing real quick, Alexa? And you know, yes. I think Katie had mentioned, and a few of you had mentioned Polkadot, and great for Polkadot, however they did it, 
but you notice that that wasn't published or addressed anywhere because we all want to know how do you do it what do we got to do just tell us and there's not a not a whisper it wasn't published and addressed by wasn't published and addressed by the sec polkadot is telling you well he'll tell you that we're not in security anymore but the sec hasn't come out and said yeah no they're right well, that would be difficult for them to do because, you know, they claim the only Bitcoin is not a security, right? And all the other cryptos in the world are. So it would be really shooting themselves in the foot and uh, with with that. But it's, it's going to definitely be interesting to see uh, what this Polkadot are doing and how it is doing uh, with SEC. Maybe they can write like a general guide for, for us. <laughs> It is actually kind of important that Gary Ginzo, when he was testifying in front of Congress, he said that there are tokens, plural, that he doesn't believe are securities. And as though I know that the only thing they publicly said is Bitcoin, but he has testified and said there are, he said a vast majority of tokens are securities, which like Nathan pointed out, I don't think is the correct analysis. Maybe if he said the vast majority of token sales are sales securities, then maybe he, maybe that's the way he, he should have phrased it. But he did testify in front of Congress and said tokens, plural. And when he's pushed on that, he didn't. He kind of just backed out. He didn't really say anything. But he, he was he was intentional and he was intentional in his words and saying that there are multiple tokens out there that he would not consider that are securities. That the test, the problem is that, like everyone's been saying, it seems to be a, that the SEC is picking winners and losers and not telling us. All right, why are there tokens and which are the tokens and what are the common feature of these tokens so we can get there so other projects can build on in the same way. So it's, it's well and good to say, yeah, there are tokens and Bitcoin's not a security, but all right, if there are tokens that Bitcoin isn't, what are the other tokens and how are they similar and different to Bitcoin and how are they similar and different than library or Ripple or anything else? Yeah, I mean, it would be good if they released those names, right? And then the community can do a study and understand, you know, what are the differences and uh, how SEC sees things. That would definitely help us on a larger scale. And um, Jonathan, what do you think is, um, is this library case, could could that be like a part of the strategy of the SEC to, um, to advance itself on the Ripple case or just another piece of the puzzle that they're looking to get for their future plans? I don't think they're really super related. Their library and the Ripple litigation, like I said, they were litigating very different topics with very different token release forms, with very different types of sales from very different projects and very different circuits. The circuits don't even have the same uh, Howey test uh, together, which may be why uh, library decided to only dispute the third prong of Howey while Ripple has disputed all of them, um, just because it could be that that circuit just has better case law on other aspects of the Howey test that the first circuit doesn't. So I don't think that they are super related anymore since in a sense that library, I mean, the SEC will almost certainly cite this into in their next reply brief and tell the alert the court to it and say, hey, court, this other this other court decided in our favor. So you should you should side with them. And then that's that's going to be an issue. But I don't think it's going to be a major issue. And I do think that they are very distinguishable cases with very distinguishable case law on how how he is applied. Thank you for that. And Nathan, what do you think uh, will this uh, impact the Ethereum case, Ethereum as a security, right? Because we do know that Gary Gensler, our favorite SEC guy, was very loud about Ethereum 
being a security. And then I think my favorite was is over 45% of nodes are located in the United States that uh, that puts uh, Ethereum network, the whole Ethereum network and all the projects building on it under the SEC uh, jurisdiction. Um, and uh, going back to that analysis uh, that the library did, they uh, they, pro they proved that um, like a higher percentage of the of the tokens was of the LBCs was actually uh, used for what they are supposed to, and in a lot higher number than actually ETH itself. And compared to Ethereum, they did not have any ICO, which again puts additional pressure on Ethereum. And I mean since. Um, since the ICO and uh, until today, how Ethereum network really developed and uh, uh, how the community grew in their, all the projects. So what do you think, how, will, will this aid um, to Ethereum being seen as a security um, in the SEC? And uh, could that mean that Ethereum is definitely next in line for uh, SEC love letters? I guess I, I would say just like shooting from the hip, I would say probably no, because Ethereum is now getting closer to, you know, if we look at Bitcoin, for example, Bitcoin's a commodity. Bitcoin was the result of immaculate conception, conceivably, right? Because there's no devco behind it. There's no funding, fundraise behind it. I think at the time, people probably just kind of knew that the Ethereum ICO was pretty iffy, but they did it anyway. And now at this point, we've gotten far enough along that look, we've swapped over to now proof of stake. That's gonna make it so much easier for people around the world to run their own nodes. And I mean, how do you really come down on Ethereum? Like, are you gonna go after the foundation? Are you gonna go after the founder? Are you gonna go after, who you go after? I mean, probably more likely what you'll see is um what's occurring with the tornado cash stuff where maybe they try to do something with the underlying infrastructure like Infura and stuff like that but i mean to be honest i i don't think so and i think the backlash to it would be so bad and the funding behind it that i i don't think they have a reason to do it um you know i think it would be ripple times 10. um ultimately, if you did that, because now the number of people that have vested interest in this moving forward uh, as a decentralized chain and community and all. So, I mean, thankfully, you know, fingers crossed that's accurate, but I mean, that's my take on it. Yeah, it's I'm also important to, to note into, into, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also important to note that, uh, that the ETH ICO is outside the national limitations at this point. Um, for mm -hmm. a sale of unregistered security. So they'd have to go downstream and find uh, subsequent sales and secondary sales to do that, which they haven't done yet. They've only gone after really the issuer. Um, there was some troubling language in the library ruling that the fact they convinced one court to say, you holding a vast amount alone is enough to make it a security because people can depend on you to because you have a vested interest in there. That's not that's not a that's not a correct test under any any case law under Howie. It's the SEC has brought that brought that same claim in both uh, Ripple and Library, and the fact they convinced one judge that that is something when there is no case law to support that is troubling. But that's the issue with ETH is that. 
all those sales, those issuer sales, the big ones, the ones that they feel like they could get a slam dunk like they did with Ripple and with, uh, with Library, those are outside of statute of limitations. So they'd have to go later on in the process, which is a much harder case to make than with the issuer and they're selling those initial tokens that the issuer pre-mined in, in that early stage. Or go after exchanges. Yeah, and I mean... Say it's a... Uh, oh, yeah, uh, let's see. Sorry, to say or go after exchanges. No, 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 no. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm laughing because of FTX, you know, and the whole talk. Well, they, they, I did, they didn't do it, right? And it's definitely going to be interesting to see how these lawsuits against uh, the SEC on behalf of Ethereum is going is going to go down. And uh, I mean, I read the SEC reports that. Um, the, I mean, some actually not a report, like a comment. Now they're blaming us for not being, for not providing regulatory guidance, and they're they're the crooks, they're the thieves. <laughs> like, do you have even one valid argument, like what's wrong and what you did well in order to, I mean, to to respond to this? Um, and Katie, what is your take? Well, this uh, help the SEC's case that Ethereum is a security. I mean, I'm I'm just of the opinion that um, going after Ethereum is is like the nuclear option. I mean, that is, um, you know, that is just going after crypto full stop, isn't it? Isn't that the, you know, a complete suppression of um, crypto and, and this kind of wonderful technology that gives us so much innovation? I just, um, I, I, can't see it and and i know that uh, immediately i say that it will happen but um it, it just seems to me to be utterly um ridiculous that 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 would happen i mean ethereum is the biggest i mean one of the biggest communities right so and there is like so much money in ethereum in the foundation and now so it would be really difficult to to take on that battle and, uh, and make it happen because at that, I mean, at this point they're attacking specifically library community, they're attacking mm -hmm. specifically, um, like Ukidao, right. And, uh, and ripple, right. But Ethereum is basically everyone. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that there are people in the space that do not hold at least a bit of Ethereum and institutions as well bought in Ethereum, biggest projects in the industry are, um, are Ethereum holders. So it would be extremely, I mean, they would be outnumbered. <laughs> I mean, it's the fact. And um, I think the the community has a lot more money <laughs> to to fight that battle than, than the SEC. And it would also, I mean, even the politicians and some of the senators are actually voicing that, for example, the FTX failure is the failure of the regulators and of the CFI, not the crypto and DeFi. And it's a good thing that to hear to know that we have those voices on high positions that do have a say in how things um, unroll. So thank you very much, everyone, uh, for coming on today. And again, Jonathan, Nathan, I know it's Thanksgiving, so really appreciate it. It was really great talking to you. Um, your social profiles would be uh, shared in the in the um, episode description, and uh, if you filled out the form, we'll tag you on on all socials that you provided there. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.
Well, enjoy that turkey, you guys. <laughs> we will. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, Katie. It was lovely, lovely seeing you again. You see. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for watching another episode of Dow Today with Alexa Mill. Dow Today podcast is for educational and thought-provoking purposes only, and nothing said by Alexa or her guests can be construed as legal, business, and or financial advice. Projects mentioned in the episodes are referred to as examples for educational and informational purposes only. It does not constitute any sort of endorsement or promotion. See you in the next episode.